Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Guernsey as a jurisdiction has a long-standing commitment to sustainable finance. We like to consider ourselves at the forefront of the development and central to that commitment is our engagement with several global bodies. We're members of several United Nations Environment Programme initiatives, including the UN's Finance Centre for the Global Sustainability. And our regulator is a member of the Network for Greening the Financial System. As part of our engagement and policy discussion, we have this Guernsey Green podcast series, where we speak with leading figures from across the sustainable finance spectrum. And before I forget to introduce myself, my name is Dr Andy Sloan. I'm Deputy Chief Executive here at Guernsey Finance, and I lead our Sustainable Finance Initiative. And today, I'm delighted to be speaking once again with Divya Shashami, Managing Partner at Greensphere Capital, LLP. As Managing Partner of Greensphere Capital, Divya manages funds that invest in sustainable companies and projects in areas such as renewable energy, resilient infrastructure, water resource, and energy efficiency. Prior to Greensphere, Divya was a partner at TPG, a San Francisco-based private equity firm. Divya has also held investment roles in special investments at the governments of the Singapore Investment Corporation, Unilever Ventures, the Parthenon Group and Goldman Sachs. Divya is a non-executive board member of Fortera PLC at Duranta Energy, and she is also a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader and served for two consecutive terms on the Council of Chatham House. And she was also appointed by the Secretary of State to Her Majesty's Government on the Council of Sustainable Business, where she leads the Net Zero Carbon Initiative. Hello, Divya. I mean, that's a, a, an incredible um, resume you have there. And it was great to speak to you earlier this year at Sustainable Finance Week in 2020. And it was fantastic um, to ask you to join us again, um, knowing you know, what an incredible contribution you've been making to the, to the sector. It's been an incredible six months since, uh, our, since our online event in June. Um, the announcement recently from the UK government relating to green finance at the new Green Horizon Summit in London a couple of weeks ago, and specifically the confirmation that green finance is now front and centre of the UK financial services strategy. Well, yeah. So all that you know, uh, sort of introductory aside, Divya, broadly, may I ask you your, your thoughts on that? Well, I think... COVID has put into sharp uh, focus what we've all been saying for a very long time, that climate change, climate stress, whatever you'd like to call it, uh, this move away from what we all have been living in, in mathematical averages to mathematical extremes, needs to start being incorporated in how we assess risk in business. And I think finally, with all of the wonderful work from Mark Carney, and uh, his team have been doing it uh, with the TCFD. Um, we're starting to see, you know, an increasingly increasing number of board directors in PLCs, the FTSE 100, FTSE 250, um, but also fund managers incorporate these um, risks as real risks. And what they are definitely seeing is, you know, we've we've not, we didn't anticipate COVID. Uh, we largely uh, hadn't weren't prepared for it. Um, and systemic risks have a way of massively changing the environment around you. And so increasingly people are looking at these risks more holistically. They're starting to incorporate them, uh, not just as box ticking exercises or, you know, kind of ESG um, do good initiatives, but actual ways of assessing risk in a business. Um, and, and they're using it to price, which 
uh, I don't know if we've really got quite there with accurate pricing of those risks, but certainly um, people who have no plan uh, are getting penalized. And, and that's, I think, a good thing. So you're talking about pricing risk there. I mean, that goes to the underlying rationale of TCFD. And I think, you know, you were very, you were very vocal on this, on this topic earlier this year. Do you think that understanding of risk, uh, or how much further to go do you think of, of people's understanding of risk is going to be required um, to meet what is quite a, um, an ambitious policy agenda from the UK government? Well, I think I think certainly the investment management community is is is, is getting there. Um, you know, we when we started Greensphere ten years ago, um, John and I, uh, John Moulton and I, mm -hmm. very very keen for those risks to be incorporated. So we we started it on the basis of three what we thought was systemic risks. The first was input volatility, the second resource scarcity, and the third was climate stress. And all of those three risks, we believe, were, were key to understand in the pricing of assets. If you didn't understand those risks, you're mispricing them. And I think when we first started fundraising, it was very difficult to convince limited partners of the value of them. Uh, it was very difficult for us to show many examples, because certainly so some examples of where people who hadn't priced those risks in had seen catastrophic failure in either asset ownership or, put, or in their portfolios. You fast forward nine years to when we were fundraising more recently, and we were walking, we were not knocking, we were kind of knocking on open doors. You know, people are seeing either fund managers who've not taken this into account, or worse, fund managers who had thought they could be opportunistic and, you know, we, uh, and, and, and hopefully wouldn't be left holding the hot potato. Mm. Uh, you know, we've seen portfolios fall apart, and that, that's that's quite telling in this environment. I mean, just the difference in attitude and difference in seriousness and how they, they approach these risks. You know, we are no longer the fund that is meeting with the, that sort of the ESG box ticking exercise that happens, uh, where we'd like to allocate you some money because we've got this thing that is a PR exercise it's it's you know we're speaking to the people who are actually terrified that their portfolio is overweight and things that are highly exposed and so yeah. so then you make that point about terrified about people's portfolios and it sort of sort of the question comes to mind for me is and you, and you mentioned this about the, the pricing of the risks in terms of transition and people talk about it might be another one of those um, where people you know, the propaganda, you know, sort of blahs about transition risk without really understanding necessarily what the, what the quantitative impacts are. How, how large an impact are you seeing uh, you know, on portfolios or, or investors' mindset in terms of transition? You talked about hot potatoes a minute ago, which is what I was waiting to jump in about, which is, you know, how, you know, how prevalent are those sorts of assets? I think they're very prevalent. Um, and in assets, you wouldn't think. So I can give you two examples where mm -hmm. portfolios have been entirely devastated i mean when i say devastated i mean total equity loss and i would say close to 80 percent debt you know sort of debt write downs yeah and 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 unable to sell portfolios i'm not going to name names so there's a billion dollar western european uh gas fired plant portfolio of about five plants that we saw uh come to us from a bank they said they'd spent over 800 million on building these plants and were happy to so sort of 
uh, four plants and we're happy to sell them to us for no more than 20 or 30 million pounds each, which is, which is interesting because they weren't uh-huh. anything. <laughs> and I made that point to them, which is if you can't buy on the margin gas cheaply enough to sell electricity at those locations mm. with the operating costs, ongoing operating costs and ongoing life cycle maintenance costs that these things have, then are the plants worth anything at all? Um, and that's, that was very much, you know, that's really a case of input volatility. So we, when we've done the analysis, input volatility, which we look at as fossil fuel volatility, it's not whether fossils are, you know, fossil fuels are, are too expensive or too cheap. It's the volatility around that that creates a cost of capital. And when that, co- that cost of capital uh, in Western Europe is anything between 200 and 500 basis points. In emerging markets, it could be as high as 800 to 900 basis points. So if you're buying a gas-fired plant on a 6 or 7% IRR, in, in, in either nominal real terms, you are going to be very likely out of the money at some point, uh, and your asset's worth nothing. And that's what I mean about mispricing assets. Another really interesting example is in the waste industry, where the fossil volatility doesn't come in, you don't look at the uh, business model and think, right, there's definite you know, fossil fuel volatility there. But the reality is, if your waste system has a very large radius of collection points versus another one which is very tight radius of collection points, then the amount of fuel you need to factor in to running that system of collection to feed the plant is, is very different. And we've seen portfolios that have much tighter radiuses do far better than those that are larger logistic plays. So, uh, you know, I think, and, you know, clearly mispriced because you don't immediately think, right, I'm going to price fossil fuel volatility into a waste treatment plant. And so those are the kinds of thinking where you look at the risk of these fossil fuel volatility or resource scarcity uh, or even climate stress. Um, I point to the oil industry here where, uh, you know, you are looking at directors who I think knew about what they were doing to the, to the planet, but then uh, chose to either not tell us or actively pay into PR to, to obfuscate facts and figures from us. Uh, and we're looking at their CapEx figures now. They, you know, the very climate change that they are, they have been, I guess, party to creating is now coming and biting their own portfolios. So, you know, you look at the large oil majors and having to put up seawalls, for example, around mm-hmm. their, um, uh, around their kind of uh, oil, you know, oil <laughs> it, it's, it's almost comical. And so, you know, whether you are a company, a PLC, um, like an Exxon or a BP, or whether you are a fund looking to invest in certain assets or looking to invest in certain supply chains, these are coming at you in a myriad of dif- different ways. And I think there are fund managers who have been doing this for a while who get this risk intrinsically. And then there are others who are trying to still box tick because they don't quite believe it. And I think we need to figure out, I think when, when you're putting you know, capital to work, you need to figure out which, which of the guys who know it and which of the guys who don't. Yeah, and I suppose that's fascinating point. You're talking about the actual the pricing of the assets there. You're talking about it in quite a sophisticated, well, quite clearly, given what you, you do. I mean, some apologies for sounding so naive to sort of come up with this question. But um, if you listen to the rhetoric, you know, it's such a mismatch away from the actuality of what you're describing there, which to me possibly 
explains away uh, while they talk, you know, we talk about the fact that the actual cost of uh, renewable energy um, production. Uh, if you look at some some of the some of the reports that I've read, I've seen some of the, some of the um, the anti uh, groups sort of say that the costs are nowhere near as extreme as what's been suggested by the pro green lobby. But you know, if you drill down into it and understand better the risks as you clearly are unable to, um, you get a much more complete picture. I mean, that's uh, that was um, what I'd call real wake up call type stuff when you're talking about you know close to eighty percent of write off. Um, percent of equity, eighty percent of the debts. The yes, sorry, eighty percent of the debt write off. My apologies. Well, so, the um, well, the banks really. So you know, this is a real. If you speak to the Green Finance Institute or, um, you know, kind of the kind of collection of banks that they've been speaking to, this is something that really worries banks these days because they are, they are the ones who are going to be exposed, um, especially if you look at some of the high level of gearing and some of the infrastructure assets uh, out there, uh, where, you know, whether it's a, you've got very, very thinly capitalized businesses with, you know, significant mezzanine tranches and, and senior debt tranches in there. These are the guys who need to start thinking these things through. And, and so far, they haven't been. So they, yeah. They've been blindly, I mean, if you think about how debt and MERS works, they typically take their lead from the equity owners. And, you know, the equity owners are playing a high-risk, high-stakes game if they are not divulging these, these sorts of risks. The banks, the banks need to start asking these sorts of questions, uh, which I don't think they quite have, because sometimes when we borrow... <laughs> We have conversations with banks and I, I tell them, why aren't you asking me X, Y, Z? Um, you know, you should be worried about it and I can have answers for you, but you should be asking for questions. No, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and I think it was, it was Sir Roger Gifford, who is obviously a banker, the chair of the Green Finance Institute, was explaining how the, the thought processes were from their perspective, looking at their assets. And back in, I think it was May at um, the Guernsey Funds Forum uh, in 20, 2019. And I think it's interesting to find or to understand perhaps how you know, some key players have been talking about it and explaining it. And it may be that everyone hasn't quite caught up. Um, the penny hasn't necessarily dropped with everybody, I don't think, as yet. And on that vein, obviously you saw the recent announcements in the UK government um, about you know, making TCFD disclosures mandatory for large companies and financial institutions by 2025. Mm -hmm. Do you think companies and industries are prepared for this? Or, you know, and if they are, do you think that, that they should have their sights even set higher? But again, really, how much is this helping people understand the underlying issues? If we're you know, constantly talking targets and dates, you know, actually, the, the, what I'm getting from this conversation is it, it, it's, 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 the, it's the level below of understanding that really people need to, uh, to get to. I think, so first of all, I think that you have three questions there. The first is, are people ready for it? Yeah. And I believe they are. I certainly think the FTSE 100, FTSE 250 businesses are absolutely ready for these sorts of things. There's certain industries, obviously, where scope three emissions, if you have to measure them and disclose them, are much harder to do so. But I don't think, if I'm not wrong, I don't know if you're going all the way up to scope three by 2025. I'm not sure if that's the case just yet. Um, certainly people are making commitments. So I have two hats on and when I look at this, one as a FTSE tier 50 board director, and you know, I can, I can hand on heart say we've been, I've been very encouraged to see both the board I'm on as well as other boards that I have access to and speak to through my role on the Council of Sustainable Business, that they are absolutely taking the bull by the horns. And, uh, you know, I think there has been a real wake up call 
for directors about how this risk has to be looked at. So that's not my worry. I think the worry I have is people who see this as a, um, and I think that there are two camps and I can't really, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm done enough work to understand how people fall into these two camps, but certainly the two camps that are emerging are board directors who really see these as serious issues, mm -hmm. um, who really understand that these risks will absolutely affect consumer behavior, will affect um, their supply chains. And I feel that the ones that really do understand these are a little bit closer to the coal face of the water companies and the like, who really understand that, you know, they're seeing it already and they're seeing it in, in some very impactful ways. There's a second group, I think, which we should be more worried about, and I think we can do more to educate. And, and this really falls, you know, I think, to the government, to sector groups, to, to sector trade associations to really start picking these up. And that's a lot of the work we're doing with the Council of Sustainable Business is to, is to engage these groups and, and to kind of brainstorm you know, what their path to net zero looks like. And if their path to net zero, you know, what are the big issues that they are going to have to grapple with and what big risks they're going to have to grapple with? Because if they're not grappling with the risk, that's an abdication of fiduciary duty, which is always a, a, a big term people throw around, but actually means a lot. And I think the, my worry for that second group is that they still see these risks as box ticking exercises. The most that they ever see those risks surfacing are in an ETS potential small to medium ETS liability on their balance sheets that they discuss for maybe a couple of minutes at the board meeting, but then kind of quickly gloss over and don't do enough of this scenario planning that is required to deal with systemic risk. And I think I would take that, almost take that as, as something that they need to think about more widely, because I think as board directors and as fund managers, we really do need to start looking at systemic risks in a far in, in far greater detail, because that is what we are paid to do. Uh, and I think that's something that people um, haven't been entirely honest. It's not, we're not paid to just give advice. We're really paid to understand risk. Uh, and, that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that second group starts to migrate towards the first. <laughs> Me too. And uh, I think about maybe the, you know, the clues in the question, in the phrase, it's a systemic risk. It suggests that it's rather important and significant and needs to be, you know, fully thought through. The, I had a question, actually, that we uh, discussed about previously that I was going to ask you now, but I think you've already answered it, but I was asking you, you know, if, if this is such a significant issue, why we weren't seeing more, um, you know, commitments to, from the, maybe the fund management issue, the private equity industry to, uh, to net zero in the portfolio. Um, but I think quite frankly, um, you, you've just explained that to me now. I mean, that presumably that's, that, that's the rationale why we're, we're probably not quite hearing as many commitments to net zero and we should probably see more happen as we, we move into 2021 and into COP26? Oh, I think we are. I think we are seeing commitments to net zero. I'm, I'm, I'm on the coal face um, getting these uh, <laughs> commitments out to people. And I'd urge you to go to the CSB website where we're collecting them in live, in live, you know, live time. We're literally collecting these, these, uh, these commitments. So I, I wouldn't be so harsh. I think the UK... Uh, business community has far more ambition than the government gives it credit for. In fact, I think that's one of the biggest learnings I've had, which is a lot of times government does not put in more stringent requirements of business um, because it believes, oh, you know, business is going to say we're not business friendly enough and 
especially I think with the Tories, you know, they, they're worried that business will say mm. that, you know, but they're not business friendly enough. And, and I think we need to be a lot more D Darwinian. I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer in D Darwin. If you think about the businesses that can't cope, I mean, what kind of business says I can't, if you've got a board and a board told you, look, there's a systemic risk and, and we just can't figure it out. We will take a decade to figure it out. I mean, as a private equity professional, I'd sack the board if you are, if you know, if you were to tell me that that's that's how long it was going to take to figure something out. <laughs> so you've got to then translate PLCs, right? If they're telling shareholders we can't figure this stuff out for ten years. Not many of us come in on a Monday morning and say, "Well, I've got ten years to look at this problem." Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean. Like, so and I and I do apologise. Maybe I should go to, to go out and about and explore a bit more. Maybe I think I was thinking more perspective of the pure finance uh, industry per se. When you know some of the global banks start making the commitment quite publicly, you know, just earlier this fall, as it were. But anyway, move on. But thank you very much. I think you're absolutely right. That Darwinian risk that will come back. What I meant by by Darwinian is, I think if government says, look, th this is where we should be. And a little bit of benchmarking goes a long way. And I think that's another thing the CSB is doing with, with, within sectors is to do that benchmarking. Yeah. Then we set it up, we set it at the median. And if there are, say, 20 or 30% of companies that fall below that and do go bust, that's Darwinian, right? Yeah. They're not good enough to compete in this new world of risk environment. And we as a, as a society shouldn't be subsidizing them to do so by allowing them to, you know, pollute or uh especially since comp their competitors can and do do better so i think where, where we my stance has always been is that government needs to listen to business and see that the aspirations of business are setting and 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 keep up because i think i have a lot of faith in business i have a lot of faith in that there are some great leaders out there and that, that are doing absolutely the right things no, I, I completely agree with you. I, I sort of exhort all of our listeners to go to the Council of Sustainable Businesses website and look all that up because I'm completely with you that the you know business and the private sector are you know um, a major force for good both in you know the climate agenda specifically, but you know in, in society uh, in general. Coming to so you mentioned uh, decades, you know not having a decade to look at this issue. One of the the, the sort of the topics of conversation we've had at Guernsey Green Finance over the course of this this year, particularly post um, Sustainable Finance Week in June, which it was great to have you participate, was the there were several takeaways from that about sort of matching private capital into sustainability and assets aligned with you know sustainable um, assets. Um, one of the concepts or one of the issues that came out of that is that is the mismatch potentially between sort of the investment horizon uh, that lend themselves to the, the, the nature of the actual underlying asset and the demands from from investors. And you know, we we, we commissioned Tim Haynes of the uh, ex of the Director General of BBCA. He wrote a report along these lines, and it was called "Making Waves." It's available on our website. One of those issues were, we came up with Guy Hans in New York Climate Week, we said, look, you'd rather have, you know, 8% per annum for 20 years than 15 for eight or, or some such, and maybe the, the numbers are exactly right. But do you have any thoughts on that issue, that, that, that longevity of investment horizon and assets? When it comes to you know, Mark Kearney's tragedy of the horizons, in a way, ironically, but do you, in terms of your view from uh, Greensphere, what, you know, is that something that you, uh, that resonates with you? Um, absolutely. I mean, one of our funds is a buy to hold fund, um, so, so that's, that's, you know, it's a, it's, it's something that both resonates and something we've done in practice, really. I think there are two points here. One, 
certainly for sovereigns, where I used to be at the Government Superintendent Investment Corporation, um, LPs like GIC or um, you know CIC or any of the big uh, sovereigns have a problem where they are by by their nature long-term investors, and I think one of the issues that people often underestimate is the quality of management teams, the quality of systems and the quality of an ecosystem. Certainly even the smaller things that we look at, whether it's a company or uh, an asset, you know, the quality of the management team makes all the difference. Uh, and the quality of the asset and the system, the ecosystem it sits in makes all the difference to returns. So when you have these short-lived funds, you're basically, whatever reason, having to trade out of great systems and great management teams if you've got one and trade into something that's unknown just because of the life cycle of the fund. Mm. So certainly, certainly LPs are starting to wise up to that. You know, they don't want, they, they have long-term uh, time horizons. They would prefer uh, solid cash yields. They would prefer fund managers and, and managers of companies to really have a good grip of, of, of the, the risks and the evolving risks around this business and be able to call on the ecosystem around them. And so, I certainly see that move, and I think it's one of the more interesting moves in the market. And certainly, the other, you know, the other bit of Greensphere invests in sustainable asset managers, as you know, and so that is something we are very interested in because as we invest in other sustainable asset managers, we're looking for the guys who understand the risks. You know, not merely box stickers or people who jolly come lately who suddenly think that they should have a green fund because it's you know it's the flavor of the day. But secondly, people who've really focused on the operations and the ecosystems of their underlying business so really understand it, really love it. You can see the spark go off in an asset manager's eye when, when they know their businesses and they love it, right? And so those are the guys we're looking for because those are the best underlying businesses and portfolios to, to convert into permanent capital, to convert to evergreen funds. And those are the kinds of assets that, that, fund man, you know, that LPs are really looking for and, and teams that people are really looking for. And so we are and they do exist. And again, it's Darwinian. People who, who, ha, who are box ticking, who are not coming to grapple with the risks should, should recede and these guys should become bigger. So again, it's a story of positivity. And, and, and certainly uh, I think the fund evolution will go this way for the longer lived assets, for real assets, but also for companies, which many people didn't originally think about because they, they are almost wedded in private equity, this ring, you know, merry-go-round of, one PE firm trading out for their carry. And I think PE firms in general, the ones who really get their business should, should be looking at longer time horizons for, for, their, for their asset ownership. Oh, that's good to hear. I mean, that's really, you know, really interesting and important to hear, I think. Um, and it's really, you know, really positive, actually, it's, it's to know that, you know, this is uh, something that is, that is being thought about. We've been thinking about it, but also, you know, this, you know, people are, you know, putting these thoughts into action already. Um, and I think and it's, it's cropped up before that you've, I think you've introduced the phrase to me in the notion of permanent capital. So that, you know, it's, uh, it's quite a, um, uh, an apposite uh, sort of phrase to you know what we're trying to to, to do basically is you know uh, providing providing capital for the sustainable agenda. I have I'm, I'm conscious of time now, but it's been such a it's been such a good conversation. We're, we're, we're ripping through things. One of the, uh, the questions I'd like to sort of change sort of change tax slightly now, and you mentioned it previously. Um, we've talked about LPs and what they what they what they desire, what they're after, and then you've also talked about box ticking and you know and other people's various different agenda. One thing that I wanted to ask you is specifically 
to sort of say, you know, from the coalface, what's driving LP sentiment in this area right here, right now? I personally have um, come across an awful lot of noise and rhetoric on the ESG agenda and people talking about what LPs are demanding. And I sort of sit there sometimes and look at, you know, what's reality and what's rhetoric. So I'd just like to ask somebody who's not a Johnny-come-lately in this area, um, but, you know, literally a, a leader in their field, what is driving LP sentiment across this spectrum of sustainability, ESB, and gleam of climate finance? Yeah, two things. I think LPs have definitely seen, so it really depends what LPs you're talking about. So if you think hmm. about LPs that are in uh, pension funds, especially the ones we're dealing with, some of the US LPs, they are certainly their, their membership, the people they're going to be, who hold, who, whose sort of pensions they manage, want more accountability for what their you know what their their funds are are being used for certainly in canada for example i mean the canadians have been doing this for years right so the canadians have not invested in in coal coal-fired assets for a very long time uh some have nuclear asset prohibitions i'm not sure where that some of that thinking comes from whether it's it's because of of decommissioning or whether it's because of, of what their beliefs on nuclear is but certainly on coal-fired it was is definitely very environmentally driven others have for example like the oxford and cambridge endowments they are very worried about arms um tobacco uh you know things that are conceived have perceived social ills so there's certainly a kind of a, a movement from their stakeholders uh but i think separately uh, we, we've seen some pretty hard-nosed pension funds. I've gone to one, I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but we went to a pension fund, oh, about eight, nine years ago uh, in America. We presented and they they um, they said, oh, you know, this is, this is all very good, but, um, you know, we don't, we, we don't see any value in, 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 in do-gooding. We are, you know, we have fiduciary duty. And I, and I, and I explained to them, you shouldn't be investing in renewables because they're the right thing to do. They're the, you know, the kind of good thing to do. You should be investing in renewables because they are priced accurately as opposed to uh, fossil fuel generation. Uh, I don't think we were persuasive enough. Um, mm-hmm. I think sort of two or three years ago when, we got a call actually, um, and they they said uh, we just wanted to talk to you about this. You know, you were talking about these systemic risks and how you price the risks, and we'd love to talk to you about specific deals and specific manager accounts where you're kind of really talking about pricing that risk. And and you know, here here they were, this uh, teachers pension fund, which was entirely climate skeptic, actually, finally understanding that it's climate stress and the associated issues around that the fact that there are mathematical um i guess mathematical assumptions in many of these models that are just no longer valid um that are finally coming to realize that actually this is worth looking at and i think those weirdly and i you know i i should not be saying this because i'm in the green industry but i think people like that are far more valuable in the discussion we're having than the people who've been box ticking and are continuing to box tick. Hmm. Because you know, here's this group that actually are climate skeptic. They don't really care what happens. Now, you know, everyone should care, but even if you don't, if you can't see that these risks are real risks and are having financial impact, you haven't got the message. 
And I actually have a far easier time talking to climate skeptic funds about what we do and how we do it, uh, because we approach it from the risk perspective, uh, than people who are just box tickers, because they, we can't have a substantive discussion. What we can tell them is, you know, we've been doing green reporting and, and, and reporting on job creation for 10 years, and that always puts a smile on their face, but they, they don't want to go any further than, than that on the risk. They don't, because they don't understand it. So, I mean, professionally, much more satisfying uh, to deal with the former rather than the box ticker, quite clearly. Well, it's also just a little bit more, you feel a bit more like an evan evangelist, don't you? Yes, and there's nothing more zealous than the convert, eh? <laughs> <laughs> On the, uh, I think we've probably got just time for one more substantive question, which is um, something that's recently began to emerge in, the, in this area. I'm speaking to someone, like I said, it's not, not a jolly come lately, but been engaged for a long time in this area now. I just wonder what your thoughts on the, the natural capital agenda. And you know, if, you, if we sort of go to recent announcements in recent weeks about looking at a task force for natural financial disclosures, um, and I personally myself was on a uh, was speaking with uh, people from DEFRA last week about it on a, a, a natural capital conference in the UK, and and, and so the, the 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 proposal to try and you know, replicate TCFD across the natural capital world, personally you know all all jolly good uh, and absolutely you know completely um, aligned with sort of the, the the sort of ensuring the planet can sustain the human race agenda type uh, you know, type narrative. I just wanted to come from a risk perspective, someone that's sort of embedded in this area, whether you have any um, particular thoughts on the, you know, how the, you might treat capital in this way, or, you know, indeed, is it bridge too far? I mean, in its early days uh, for that particular um, sort of agenda, but, you know, have you, have you got any views on how we might be progressing? So I, I have to say I'm, I'm, uh, I'm biased, massively biased on this particular uh, topic. It is why I have done the job I do for the past decade and a bit. Uh, I've always been privately passionately involved in the environment. Uh, I think natural capital is almost indistinguishable from wanting our children to have a better future. And, and the reason for that is we are just coming to understand how intricately linked biodiversity is with, with all of the other functions on our planet. So if you take somewhere which looks pretty green, like the Lake District, um, they've been classed as biodiversity deserts in the UK. Likewise for the large grass estates or the large shooting estates up in Scotland, again, biodiversity deserts. In fact, the UK has one of the worst biodiversity records across Europe, even though there are bits of Europe that are more densely populated than uh, some of the bits of we consider green in the UK, like Scotland. So, so it's, it's, it's something that's very personal. It, it, for me, um, trying to separate it out into the way we invest has, has actually been difficult because if you want to be a good social steward, a big good steward for uh, a good ESG fund, you can't on one hand say you have a carbon uh, target, which sometimes is actually meaningless. You know, I, I, I look at these kind of carbon targets and so much of the engineering and the, and the, and the definitions are so convoluted that you know you you start to wonder whether it's actually doing any good for 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 the the climate stress we're seeing, hmm. and actual deforestation happening uh, across the planet, uh, a massive biodiversity loss that then sets off different types of cycles that 
scientists have accurately described and studied in the past decades. So the biodiversity push is absolutely critical for companies like Unilever, who are taking it very seriously, uh, for Mars. You know, we're seeing these, these companies that are doing phenomenal, really interesting jobs on having a net biodiversity gain. And, and that's something else that the CSB does. Obviously, we have you know, the big carbon push, which, I, which I'm, I'm uh, leading with this. Uh, Justin Francis is doing the um, biodiversity lead, uh, all chaired by Liv Garfield. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a really big part of what the government is keen on doing. And certainly what business has started to see is, is almost, you know, highly in, uh, indistinguishable from, from the carbon agenda and the, and the climate agenda. So I think there are two steps, though. We, I don't think we're as far down the line in understanding the metrics to measure net biodiversity gain. I think that's something we are absolutely trying to do. Uh, certainly there's a uh, handbook. I don't want to call it a handbook, but it's kind of an evolving uh, educational program that the CSB has been doing, DEFRA has been doing uh, with businesses. Uh, it's also going to be uh, uh, coming on stream in the next couple of months. And I'm happy to share that with you when it does do. Uh, certainly I might put you in touch with Justin so that he can, he can take you through it. But um, just making businesses more aware to their supply chains and the devastation that their supply chains cause has already made a difference. And I think we are still early days, but um, it is far more emotive. And you'll find that the public are far more likely to support um, biodiversity, measurable biodiversity changes, because this, you know, it affects so many more things than just our our bottom line. It is, uh, I think it's, in, it's intrinsic to society's cultures, a nation's culture. Um, and so I know I'm looking forward to seeing how we develop this, but this is a really big, big focus for both the government as well as uh, a number of the businesses I'm involved in and our fund um, as we, you know, launch all the work we're doing in forestry at Greensphere um, to, to really grapple with the biodiversity gain as, as a key metric. Okay, very interesting stuff. So, well, perhaps my wording was slightly erroneous. Not so much an extension, but uh, another shade of the, the whole sustainability agenda, and one that's just as, as fundamental as everything else. So, but coming close to to time for our little discussion today, Divya, it's been it's been fascinating. You've been as as, as absolutely on the button in terms of values as I highly anticipated. And I do like to sort of ask people that have been on the the podcasts with me. You know how they got into this area and you say you've been committed to this you know, to environment and environmental issues for a long time i suppose maybe for those people that you know obviously will be going to linkedin now to look, look up a little bit more about yourself but you know how do you, you know give us a bit of about your backstory about how you uh, ended up at, at greensphere and being you know the keen protagonist for the net zero and the investor that you are I guess the, the two aspects, one, I've always been very environmentally linked and conscious. I've been involved with environmental charities in British Columbia uh, and in my home of Singapore um, for as far as I can remember, actually, and a very big proponent of uh, saving some of the world's most fragile ecospheres, uh, so the temperate rainforest, the Great Bear Rainforest up in BC, and also the, the ones that surround my, my, my home country in Singapore. But I think it was, it was during my career, and again, I'm going to have to be vague here, <laughs> <laughs> where I know I've invested in large-scale coal-fired generation, or at least helped them to be built. 
mm. and then seeing the supply chain devastation that that wreaks on habitats, on people's lives, um, and for no tangible economic benefit. So if you look at the economic benefit, the assets were probably mispriced. They were probably, they were probably long-term far less attractive for the society they were built for than, than otherwise. Yeah. And, and I knew that there had to be a different way of doing it because um, I'd seen firsthand, you know, you can't get away from the fact when you're, uh, certainly when I was at a sovereign wealth fund of my own home country, that, you know, my dad's pension was probably what I was managing, right? So mm -hmm. um, you can't tell people they have to uh, sit back and take a massive cut for doing good on one hand. But on the other hand, you start to get really aware of the fact that you can do good and make money. And those, those two things are not mutually exclusive. And you look around and no one's saying it and you feel you have to do something about it. So that's when I, you know, I, I moved on and started Greensphere with John, who was a, you know, a mentor for a very long time and who I'm very fortunate to, um, to have called both a mentor and a friend and, and who has been able to seize this of the world the same way I do. So it's, you know, it was, a, I guess, a passion project that ended well. Uh, it hasn't ended. This is still ongoing, uh, knock on wood. Um, but, but that's how I got started. And I think, I, and, I, and I hope, you know, there are many other stories like mine, because now we're investing in other sustainable asset managers. You know, these stories are what drive people. Uh, and these are the stories that kind of create the entrepreneurs that will make the change. Well, I mean, you say passion project, uh, Didi. I mean, it's been incredible. Uh, you know, talking to you, Dave. The, the passion you have for all of this, you know, is very much front and center. You can you can hear it in your voice. I can see, I can visualize you moving around, uh, sort of your desk there, to where, we, where we're speaking about you know, how much um, you, you bring to this to this agenda. And I, 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 like I said before, I was really looking forward to, to hearing what you had to say about systemic risk. You've got some really great insights in there. Um, you know, the, the, the articulation of how this impacts investors' portfolio and how it impacts them now, not in decades down the road, is something that I'd hope would be a wake-up call for everybody listening um, to us today. You know, it really is, uh, you, you, I think you encapsulated with a beautiful uh, soundbite there. It really is, a, it's not just systemic risk, it's Darwinian risk. Uh, and that for me was a, was a fundamental, if I take away one thing from today, it was, I'm walking around with that phrase, um, well, for, for a long time to come. So it remains nothing more than David to say, but really, really, you were absolutely amazing. It was brilliant to be speaking with you. So thank you again for your time and insights today. Um, just to recap, we have a quite a back catalogue of uh, interviews and discussions now on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast site. Check them out wherever you search for your, um, your podcast. So search by Guernsey Green Finance. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org. We are guernsey.com. Interact with us on Twitter, obviously, at GSY Green Finance and at We Are Guernsey. We also will have links to Divya and Greensphere's social media in our show notes. So do check these out to hear more from Divya. We'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. And it just remains to say thank you once again, Divya. It was an amazing session. Thank, thank you so much. Cheers.